Mr Speaker, yesterday we saw the worst of humanity, but we will remember the best. We will remember the extraordinary efforts to save the life of PC Keith Palmer, including those by my right honourable friend, the member for Bournemouth East. And we will remember the exceptional bravery of our police, security and emergency services, who once again ran towards the danger, even as they encouraged others to move the other way. On behalf of the whole country, I want to pay tribute to them for the work they have been doing to reassure the public, treat the injured and bring security back to the streets of our capital city. That they have lost one of their own in yesterday's attack only makes their calmness and professionalism all the more remarkable. Mr Speaker, a lot has been said since terror struck London yesterday. Much more will be said in the coming days. But the greatest response lies not in the words of politicians, but in the everyday actions of ordinary people. For beyond these walls today, in scenes repeated in towns and cities across the country, millions of people are going about their days and getting on with their lives. The streets are as busy as ever, the offices full, the coffee shops and cafes bustling. As I speak, millions will be boarding trains and aeroplanes to travel to London and to see for themselves the greatest city on earth. It is in these actions, millions of acts of normality, that we find the best response to terrorism. Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. It's Thursday the 23rd of March. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, this week's podcast is somewhat different to the one we originally planned. Originally, this week's show was going to be me speaking to Mark Diffley from Ipsos Mori, Scotland, about what we thought was going to have been the big story of this week, which was the Scottish Parliament voting for another independence referendum. But of course, events in London have very much taken over. As we all all know by now, yesterday on Wednesday there was a terrorist attack in Westminster which left three people dead, I guess four people if you include the terrorist, and scores injured. Now as somebody that lives in London, and I think I can speak for fellow podcasters Leah Brassi and Rob Vance as well, this obviously hits very close to home. We don't, believe it or not, spend huge amounts of time in Westminster itself, but we do spend some time there occasionally and, you know, know the area reasonably well. And it is, of course, extremely distressing and shocking to have seen the images that we saw on our TV screens yesterday. Now, on a podcast like this, it's very hard to know what to say. Obviously, we talk about elections and polling and sort of politics on this show but it feels very inappropriate so soon after the event to discuss it in much detail in that sense. Well, partly because it's still very early, the facts are still coming in. I'm sure by the time you listen to this, maybe things have moved on from what I've just said. But also, frankly, it doesn't feel appropriate to start analysing the implications of a terrorist attack so soon after it's happened. So for now, all we can do is extend our heartfelt sympathies to the victims of yesterday's attack, the loved ones of those killed, and of course those people that were injured too. And a big thanks, as Theresa May, the Prime Minister, said there, to the security services and the uh, emergency services for the work that they do 
keeping us safe. It is, of course, very much appreciated, and it's only times like this when we realise what valuable work they do. So for now, on with um, this week's show. So another way that this week's show is different is that you might notice there's some uh, new theme music and some new audio equipment that um, I'm using. So very much prompted by uh, a sense that we're using more and more telephone calls, more and more Skype interviews, I really wanted to sort of upgrade the audio. So I've been out and about getting new microphones and cables and mixers and things like that to hopefully try and upgrade the audio quality a bit and hopefully that comes through in what you're hearing at the moment. It's very much going to be a sort of trial and error process. This is all very much self-taught. I'm not a producer or an editor or anything like that, but hopefully it will make the show feel that a little bit more um, professional. I think for those bits where we're speaking in a room together the ambient, and the ambience is okay, then the audio is okay. But I think definitely can we can definitely improve on some of the sort of Skype interviews and phone interviews. And given the variety of topics we're going to be talking about on this show in the near future, um, there's going to be a reason to do that with the German elections, French elections, Northern Ireland, of course, Scotland. So there's going to be more and more Skype and phone interviews. So hopefully the quality is very much um, improved here. But for now, on with this week's show, um, I was joined by Leo Barassi and Rob Vance, uh, as is as I frequently am, and we took the uh, semi-traditional approach to polling matters, where we each picked a polling or elections-related topic and discussed it in detail. I unveiled the latest polling matters opinion survey results on whether or not there should be a second referendum on uh, Brexit or on Britain's membership of the EU. Leo introduced a topic about the potential for a snap election and why he doesn't think that will happen. And Rob talked a bit about Northern Ireland uh, and after the, following the death of Martin McGuinness, but also more generally. So without further ado, on with this week's episode of Polling Matters, and thanks very much for listening. So on with, uh, on with today's show. Now, Leo and Rob, um, I don't know if you caught had a chance to catch last week's podcast, but I think it's worth talking about Scotland before we get into our topics. So what we're going to do today is all, all pick a topic and then talk about that. But um, Scotland does feel like the story of the last couple of weeks. Um, last week I spoke to Elsa Henderson of the University of Edinburgh, who, and I, I recommend listeners who haven't heard that show go back because she was excellent and really gave a thorough um, sort of a debrief on what was going on there. But what is, um, I mean, I'll start with you, Rob, really. What's your kind of impression on what's going on um, north of the border? It feels like there's been a sort of full circle um, in terms of the conventional wisdom, where people started off after Nicola Sturgeon gave her speech really panicked, and now people are almost relaxed and maybe almost too relaxed. But what's your impression of what's going on? So, I mean, my view is that Nicola Sturgeon has, has taken the view that making an unrealisable demand um, works for her politically, partly in managing her own party, um, partly in terms of, uh, I, I don't want to, be, to put this provocatively, but you know, to an extent having the potential to um, create a greater grievance with, with, with Westminster and, and Theresa May in particular. Um, and in a sense, Theresa May partly shadowed by the, 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 sort of the, the, the experience of David Cameron in calling the referendum on, 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 on Brexit, um, is kind of not in a position to call her bluff and say, yeah, fine, have the referendum. I, don't think, I think the polling evidence, to me, suggests that it would be a challenge for the SNP to, to win a referendum. Not impossible, by any stretch of the imagination, but, but I think at the moment... The, the majority starting of the from a higher base than they did last sure, time. Sure, sure, sure. But then, but then, in a sense, positions are more sort of concrete than I think they were before. Um, and I think there is uh, there is cl- 
there was uncertainty before, and that was a big, big factor in, in no winning last time. Um, and that economic uncertainty created by changing constitutional relationships is kind of even greater now. And we've seen what happened to the pound after Brexit. And so I think, the, the, for me, the polling is quite clear and, and makes sense, which is there is some shift towards a yes vote. There is, you know, a grievance there and, and a legitimate one in, in many ways. Um, there is, uh, But there is also a feeling of, well, do we need it now? You know, can we not get on with things for a little while? Um, and even some supporters of independence, as I see it, don't necessarily want a referendum now. And that might be partly because they don't feel like they would win. And a second defeat would, would, would sort of kill the project for longer, though maybe that's <laughs> not a, a sort of valid hypothesis. Um, but also some who, who genuinely feel like, let's get this Brexit thing done with, then let's sort of move on to the next thing. I mean, Leo, what's your perspective on this? I guess there's a number of different interpretations you could take about Scotland. Theresa May still has the ability to dictate the timings to some extent, doesn't she? So I mean, how optimistic would you be um, as a unionist, assuming you are one? I think Rob is, Rob's point You've got to are, answer that question, Leo. Are you, are you a unionist? That, that wasn't the question. <laughs> <laughs> that was just an assumption that I'll leave hanging there. Uh, I think Rob's points uh, make absolute sense that in terms of from Sturgeon's perspective that this is, this is great internal management and it's it's very helpful for building up the sense that, that Scotland's being denied. I think the thing that surprises me is those points were so predictable that it seems surprising that uh, May and the government just sort of feel like they've been caught quite flat-footed by it. That I mean, it really wasn't hard to see that that... that Sturgeon calling for a, a referendum was an obviously great thing for her to do. But what uh, was the alternative for May? Because presumably she either, having with that referendum be, having been called for, May can either say go for it, as Robert suggested she might might have done, mm. or she can say no. Right? No, no. I, yeah, I agree with that, and uh, I don't. I I agree. It would have been completely out of character and uh, utterly unlikely that she would say yes to it, but. I think it was the way that the government responded um, that felt quite high-handed and quite clumsy that sort of suggests that they hadn't really thought this through in advance and hadn't properly worked out a response and so were caught out by the demand, which sort of seems seems so so uh, un, so incompetent that I wonder whether it's that's wrong and they had planned this and they just were not very good at planning, yeah. but it sort of feels like... It, their response wasn't one that soothed a way for us in Scotland, I think. And, and there's some optics on this. In the run-up to this situation, there was uh, an announcement that the, the nations of uh, the United Kingdom would be consulted in advance of triggering Article 50 and so on. And, and evidently, to an extent... There was some consultation. Maybe, maybe it was right. No, the one Scottish way. secretary was consulted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, sure. But, but this is, but this is the point. Right? I mean, like the, Theresa May doesn't come across as particularly interested in what the government of Scotland, the government of Wales, the government of Northern mm. Ireland, particularly think about. But that's, what, that's, that's what Nicola Sturgeon says, and, like, and this is one of the. I mean, I, I should say that people that have read uh, my, my recent piece on political betting will know that I'm pretty pessimistic about the future of the union, essentially because I think that. If Brexit goes anything other than 100% well, which one imagines it won't, then the, the conditions will be there for a um, a yes vote. Alongside the fact that as popular as Ruth Davidson is, it still feels like it's going to be an SNP versus Tory fight. And I don't know, I don't, don't necessarily know if I like those odds. But on the cons on consultation point, 
I mean, Nicola Sturgeon, I don't know, maybe this is me just being a sort of uh, London unionist type person, but she talks about, oh, I've negotiated in good faith, I've, I'm willing to... Uh, I'm willing to compromise, but everyone knows Nicola Sturgeon wants independence, right? I mean, it doesn't. It feels quite hollow what she's saying. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think the the idea of negotiating <coughs> faith when it's quite clear what your agenda is in terms of does does Nicola Sturgeon want to make Brexit for the UK as as good as possible, or what are I've not heard very much about what the Scotland specific concerns about Brexit are, um, and I don't think there's a particularly strong agenda there for May, perhaps for May to respond to, but I think. That doesn't mean that May couldn't have done more to at least give the appearance of, in a sense, taking into account those concerns. But, but what, what could that look like? I mean, I wonder if actually it was a strategic mistake to suggest that, it was the, the, that the, the nations of the UK were going to be consulted. I mean, in a way, it's what you do in a federal country and you know the UK isn't there perhaps that's the direction that we're heading in but to suggest that each part should be consulted and therefore by implication has something of a veto it was either an unrealisable demand or one that would fundamentally change the UK. The macro position is ultimately that Scotland voted Remain and the UK voted Leave right and you have to come back to that fundamental point unless Theresa May said I want to remain after all you know, Nicola Sturgeon's got some sort of way of um, saying that you're not listening to Scotland, doesn't she? Um, it will be fascinating to see what happens in Scotland. We were going to have Mark Diffley on from Ipsos uh, Scotland today in the aftermath of the vote that was supposed to happen today. But for obvious reasons, uh, we're, we're delaying that till when it does. Um, let's move on to our, our usual format or our, our common format, shall we say, where we all pick a topic and, um, and discuss it. So I'm going to talk about the latest... Polling Matters Opinion Survey. Regular listeners will know that we regularly conduct some polling through Opinion. And we're now getting into the stage where we can start tracking some of what we do. So one of the questions that we asked in December was around uh, whether or not there should be a second referendum on uh, the Brexit deal, basically, once or, or, or Brexit itself, once uh, the deal is announced. And we asked, we asked about that again, but first we asked how confident the British public was that Theresa May and the government will be able to negotiate a Brexit deal that is good for the UK. And 49% said they were confident that um, in Theresa May and the British government, 41% said they were not. So there's an eight-point sort of win for confidence, I guess, uh, which I think is higher than some other polls. Other polls have it a bit more, sort of 50-50. And the dynamics of this were, as you might expect, 72% of Leavers were confident, again, reaffirming those high expectations of Leave voters, perhaps, 18% 18% not, 60% of over 65s were confident, and a really interesting dynamic which I thought was, that, was, was there was that 57% of men were confident, 42% of women. Uh, so perhaps there's something in there about, well there's a clearly a gender difference there which is... And there's a gender difference on Brexit itself, right? Yes, so that is something to keep an eye out for. And then as an aside, um, given we've just talked about it, only the region of the UK that was the least confident was Scotland. of Scots were confident, 62% not. So that's just some of the dynamics around that. But still, a divided nation, I suppose, but a slight lead for confidence there. On the specific issue of um, should there be a second referendum once the terms are are known, back in December, uh, we had 33% saying there should be another referendum, 52% saying there shouldn't be, and 15% saying don't know. We've seen a slight change this time, which is interesting. 38% 38% say there should be now, so that's up five points. 52% say there shouldn't be a second referendum, so that's exactly the same. 
and 10% say don't know, which is a five point decrease. So at a very sort of cursory level, don't know seems to be moving towards there should be a referendum, a second referendum, sorry, once the terms are known. How does this break down by Remain and Leave? Well, as you might expect, 83% of Leavers say there shouldn't be one versus 81% in December, so not a lot of change. About one in 10 Leavers think there should be, which is an interesting finding, I guess. Maybe there's some of the regrets sit there. On the Remainer side, 66% say there should be now, 59% say there should be, it should, said there should be in December. So to take all these numbers together, we're seeing a slight shift towards support for another referendum. The people that say they should not are kind of fixed. And that increase in support appears to be a decline in don't knows and maybe a consolidation amongst Remainers that originally were prepared to give this all the benefit of the, of the doubt, um, now being less so. So guys, I just want to bring in some of, uh, get your thoughts on some of this. I mean, the issue of a second referendum does seem to have been parked politically in the sense that the Labour Party doesn't seem, at least the leadership, doesn't seem particularly um, convinced by this. So how important do you think this sort of data finding is? Because I guess on face value, no one's really calling for one. But if support increases over time, then stands to reason someone might. I mean, Leo, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, uh, I, th I agree with that. I think um, the problem that the argument for a second referendum has at the moment is really about the leavers. I think no one is going to be particularly impressed if 80% or 90% even of people who wanted to stay in the EU say that they want another referendum so that they can have, a, have another bite at the cherry. Uh, I think where it gets interesting is if more leavers say that they, they're changing their mind. At the moment, it's only 11%. I think uh, if that shifted, then the, the debate might move. I think probably the, the phrase second referendum is, is unhelpful for the argument. I think it's, it's probably got a bit toxic. I think if people uh, want to make the case for it, then it needs to be rebadged as, as something different, as sort of a, an approval referendum or something that's, that's not just a... Uh, come back and have another go because you gave us the answer that we didn't like. Mm. I mean, Rob, um, another finding from this poll is that 60% of Labour voters think there should be a second referendum. That's actually up six points from um, December. Now, it's quite hard with some of these numbers to tell how genuine the shifts are. I mean, yes, shifts of five or six points are statistically meaningful, but still, there still could be an element of, of noise in there. Um, I mean, what do you think of some of that? I mean, Labour seem to be not really... Um, going for this idea of another referendum do it at the moment? No, but then I'm not sure the Labour Party really, ne Labour supporters necessarily know what they want out of this at all and they've not necessarily been given any particular leadership by their leaders whether they support them or not um, and I think a lot of these questions do to some extent boil down to sort of whether they do support the leadership or not so you've sort of got this challenge of um, what the what the Labour supporters think but all versus how do they see this issue through the prism of the leadership? Um, I think the biggest thing about a second referendum, and I agree with Leo's point about you know sort of lack of and frames and and it not being a helpful way of doing it, is what that would be for. Because ultimately, there's a sort of political discussion about the value of that and why that would be a good idea or a bad idea and what people would think about that. But there's also a kind of legal one, which is like if you put a deal to the public and they say no, then what does that mean? We we go back to the beginning. We go back and try and negotiate a different deal, I don't think that would be particularly successful. Or do we end up falling out of the EU um, and sort of be it sort of year zero WTO kind of style thing? And I think it's precisely that uncertainty which, um, whilst I don't necessarily agree with all of the actions that May has taken, 
setting, getting to a position whereby she is effectively going into the negotiations with a pretty, like, drastic um, kind of hand. Um, sorry, so she's being dealt a bad hand, but she's going in there with more freedom of manoeuvre than I think most people felt possible. Yeah. Um, we don't know. I mean, part of the thing about this is the sort of helpful ambiguity. Of, we just don't really know what her agenda is, and that's kind of whilst unsettling for. There was people a that live in this country that, um, is probably, from a game theory point of view, not unhelpful necessarily in terms of, of those negotiations. But isn't the problem that ultimately there's going to be a certain wing of her party that's nothing, nothing's ever going to be um, enough, is it? I mean, there's going to be some sort of divorce bill of some kind. That's going to, I mean, it's inconceivable that the EU will say, don't worry about it. There's going to be no... And for, for some people, right away, that's going to be sort of unacceptable. So, for example, for, for UKIP... I mean, what, to go back to my original point, it's going to be fascinating to see where Theresa May does decide to compromise and at what stages she is prepared to take on that wing and actually to push back on UKIP, for example, because she does seem to be making quite a lot of headway by squeezing the UKIP vote and consolidating the Conservative Party as the Brexit Party. Um, but yet she does have that freedom, at least in principle at the moment, to, to decide where she wants to negotiate. She's almost removed some of the, uh, the Brexiteer barriers to some of that anyway. Um, but let's move on. Um, there'll be more on that in the future on, 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 once Article 50 is invoked. I think that's next week. Uh, so we'll be talking about this again. Leo, your topic this week is about snap elections. There was this kind of furore last week, wasn't there, about, oh, there's going to be an election on May the 4th. She's going to announce it when she invokes Article 50. That was immediately denied uh, by, the, by the government. I find this all quite strange, I must admit, because Theresa May has been nothing but clear, in her, at least in her public pronouncements, that there will be no snap election and yet this rumour will not go away. It doesn't die and it doesn't die because lots of people look at the numbers and think about the stonking majority she could have if an election was called on the current terms. Um, but I think there are three reasons that aren't particularly being talked about why it, from her, from May's perspective, it makes sense for her not to be calling the snap election. Um, the first is boundary changes. So they're not going to happen till at least 2018, possibly sometime after that. So if you had an election before they've gone through, then first you're not taking advantage of the structural benefits you get from boundary changes. So you're fighting on more difficult terms. And second, you've got to find a bunch of candidates who are going to be prepared to stand in seats that are not going to exist the next time they fight. Not impossible, but a bit of a pain. Secondly, I think we should think about the time frame for May personally. So let's assume she, uh, she is optimistic and thinks that she's going to be as successful as the most successful of her predecessors. Realistically, these days, it seems eight to ten years is about the most you can be a prime minister, however successful you are, before you really run out of your shelf life. So if she goes to an election now, then... She would have to fight the next one in 2022. Um, so suppose she fights now and absolutely uh, eviscerates Labour. Labour elects a new leader. They've got five years to turn themselves around and, and become more effective. So May then is fighting a general election. 
if Corbyn st- steps down. It's plausible that Labour by 2022 could be a, a stronger opposition, having badly lost an election in 2017. So by then, May's been Prime Minister for uh, six years or so, is fighting a strong Labour Party. That's not a great uh, situation to be in. Alternatively, she holds out to 2020. I reckon there's a pretty good chance. I think you could look at that and think Labour are not going to be any better off if they haven't fought an election before then in 2020 than they are now. May can fight that, destroy Labour. She might not have to fight another election again. So, or at least she won't have to till 2025 um, and she might well be gone by then. There is one additional thing uh, to support your argument, which I think is this Scotland dynamic, which we've just been talking about. If Theresa May called an election now, if I'm the SNP... I'm going to fight that election on a um, manifesto that says I want a, ref- a referendum on uh, membership of the UK in the next two years. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But having said that, having said that, I do, I do want. I'll come back to you in a sec, but I do, I do want to challenge that a little bit. I think I, I still think, and I may very well have egg on my face. It wouldn't be the first time, uh, but I, th- I think she is making a mistake by not trying to find a way of having an election this year. And the reason I think that is that fundamentally. I do not see how the political situation for her is going to be better in 2020 than it is now. But this is my point. It doesn't need to be better. So I agree it's not going to be better in 2020, but as long as it's not much worse than over the period of her prime ministership, if if we're assuming that she doesn't want to still be there in 2025, Mm -hmm. then her life in general in the early 2020s is a lot easier if she holds off now than if she goes from the election now and then has to fight another one five years down the line. So so remind me, I I lose track of the... um, parliamentary aspect of the, any Brexit deal. Does Parliament have to approve a Brexit deal? It's been promised to vote. It's unclear, as I was saying earlier, exactly what that vote will mean. So with the majority that she's got, I'm not necessarily saying that would, that vote would be lost, but it's not inconceivable that, let's say, 30 of her MPs do not like that deal for one reason, and a Labour Party and opposition is able to sort of coalesce. But they're kind of bound, but this is the point about that deal, they're kind of bound in. So if the options on the table are support this deal... Or WTO. or WTO or whatever, if it's support your the leader who's just negotiated the most complex treaty since the Peace of Westphalia, you know, <laughs> then, you know, and then we're going to go to the country in whatever it will be, a year's time, you know, it's going to be hard for them to do stuff, you know, it's going to be, you know, the, the, the threat amongst them of sitting Tory MPs, never mind the fact that um, there will be at least some Labour um uh, members of Parliament who will, would, regardless of what the leadership is at, would, would, would I would have thought break a whip in order to support the deal if they feel like it's it, yeah. the right yeah, one. Um, and the DUP are more or less, you know, fully signed up members of the the Brexit at all costs club, as far as I can tell. So the parliamentary arithmetic looks tight, but there are neither. I, I don't see headbanging. I don't see the headbanger Euro, you know, Brexit at all costs voting against it. And then the rem- and then the remainder is tiny. I mean, as we saw with triggering. Um, Article 50, you know, the number of Tory MPs that tried it was, was it just Ken Clark in the end? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I just wonder whether all will become clear, I suppose, in the next six months as to what the dynamics of this are going to be. Maybe, you know, maybe the, uh, the sort of basics of any deal will be negotiated quite quickly and then it will be the detail that leads us up to the wire and let's face it all these things go up to the wire but yeah. I still think an interim deal is, is the most likely thing I mean when you look at the timetable of where they need to get to the, the, the deal needs to be more or less ready within a year before it then goes through all of the processes of going through the European Parliament and being translated and all the rest of it so it's actually people talk about two years but it's actually a very narrow 
there will Actually, be a, after the French election as well, right? Yeah, yeah, and, the, and arguably the German, German one. Yeah. I think there will be a time when Theresa May walks away from something, a meeting, some, yeah, and it's positioned as a Theresa May says no and, and walks away. And it will be fascinating to see in that scenario, this poll we've done today about second referendums, the right decision, wrong decision polling we've seen in the past that doesn't really see much movement since last year's referendum. What that does in such a scenario where it looks like it could conceivably be that there is no deal. And there is another aspect to that, which is the, the kind of the Schultz rule, if you like. If you look at what's going on in Germany, mm. it might feel unlikely now, but if there is some kind of scenario where Jeremy Corbyn is not Labour leader anymore, and there is a more sort of pro overtly pro-European Labour leader in, in place, you can see how there could be a sort of um, coalescence of a scenario where the de Brexit deal is not going very well. The public's kind of turning against it a little bit, not necessarily in favour of Remain, but just in favour, just against how May's dealing with it. Suddenly, the Labour Party could find itself um, in a better position, and I'm not arguing Labour's going to win the next general election, but if they were to lose it by seven or eight points, the Lib Dems would surge in the southwest. The Tories could find themselves in a more difficult position, and I, I don't know. I just still feel that if you've got a 15-point lead, you'd be foolish not to make uh, make them take advantage of that. So I think I think that's probably the other underexplored factor in, in her decision making um, the Tory relationship to the Lib Dems so the Tories and, and people are I'm um, hearing people getting this wrong the Tories have more of a Lib Dem threat than Labour do so uh, the Tories have 24 seats with a majority less than 10,000 over the Lib Dems Labour only have 6 and if you look at those Tory seats they're places like Eastbourne, Lewis, Twickenham, St Ives uh, they're all quite Remainy. Uh, Labour Labour seats, some some like that, like Cambridge, but also there's Burnley, Birmingham, Yardley. They're not not quite the same kind of place. Um, I think there will be Tory MPs who who will be thinking if there was a general election right now, they're going to lose their seats to the Lib Dems. So they're going to be saying to May, "I don't want an election now." Now it might be that in four years they're three years they're not any better off they're still going to lose their seat but at least they got to be an MP for a bit longer mm -hmm. so an election now would be suicide for some of them in terms of their jobs now look there will be a lot of Labour seats they'd be more than replaced yeah yeah they would <laughs> but, be but, but that's point to say the yeah the, the loss aversion for the people who are right next to Theresa May isn't outweighed by a bunch of candidates who aren't in Parliament yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who are going to gain a seat now the thing is obviously if, so if, if, Brexit, Brexit, if you were the Tory candidate for Lewis, who I believe was a Brexiteer, um, you would probably change seats, wouldn't you? You would like look, right. to, run, you would look to run in a, yeah. a West Midlands... Uh, but, but, uh, but, yeah, the point is, uh, now in 2020, that might be a lot worse for them. I mean, it might, it might, uh, those, those people might be objectively in a better position to hold off Lib Dems now than they mm -hmm. are after a really tough Brexit in 2020. But they don't know that for sure. Right now, they would look at this and think, we're definitely going to lose our seat. We don't want an election. Well, at the moment, Theresa May certainly is indicating there won't be a snap election, but it still, it still seems to rumble on, so we'll keep an eye on that. I mean, for the final sort of five minutes, um, Rob, for your topic, you were talking earlier about the... Um, you, well, you mentioned the DUP several times. Mm. Um, you were going to mention Northern Ireland and what's, what's, what's been going on there. Obviously, a, a big week with Martin McGuinness dying, but more generally... Um, you know, there's lots going well, on. Yeah, Ireland, there's a, there? well, there's a whole sequence of events. So um, clearly, uh, a kind of underwritten aspect, I think, of the the Brexit negotiations is is, is certainly the the role of Northern Ireland um, and the complex way in which that will play out. 
Um, possibly underwritten because people just don't know exactly how on earth to square a circle of if we went in a customs union, do you then have customs posts? And if we, you know, the, the, the idea is hard borders and soft borders. And could Northern Ireland remain within the customs union, in which case you have a hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, which I think in some ways looks like an increasingly likely option. I mean, there is a kind of hard border in the fact that there is a sea in the way. Um, but, you know, the, but the dynamics of that, I think, are interesting and obviously play out within the different communities in Northern Ireland in sort of quite complex ways. And in some ways that was then surprising that um, the recent election, um, which was kind of driven by, I think, two things, but, but mainly the, the, the scandal over the, the, the energy setup, that that wasn't more about Brexit. That was very much a referendum on the DUP, to which, in a sense, the DUP lost but still came out as the winners. Um, and there wasn't a realignment amongst the, the, the unionist community, but there was a strong movement towards... Well, they, well, they just came out. I mean, they came out as winners by sure, one but, more but, seat. But, but, I mean, but, but differential turnout, right? So, yeah, yeah. so Sinn Féin, um, it's not like people were going, oh, they I've had, I've had an election. Election. But like, let's be clear and remind ourselves that there are fundamentally two elections that are... Go- it's a bit more complicated than that, but there are fundamentally two elections that are going on of who represents the one community and who represents the other. And obviously the alliance were beneficiaries, but it's interesting that it was the alliance that were beneficiaries of, um, if you like, unionist with the small U um, supporters in places like East Belfast or elsewhere who, who move towards the alliance rather than necessarily switching back to the uh, official union, I can't remember what they're called now, the, the Unionist and Conservative Party or whatever uh, they, they are now called. Um, so, you know, the DUP maintained its um, it, its hold broadly on, on that community's representation in, in the Northern Irish Parliament and Sinn Féin, you know, vote the SDLP massively squeezed um, partly by the system, so I believe you know moving from six to five member um, constituencies can make a, an interesting kind of quirk to the way in which the representation works. Um, perhaps too geeky even. And Nick Shelty from Sligo Tour was suggested uh, a couple of weeks ago on the show. Um, again, another one uh, for people that are interested in some of the uh, devolved play, uh, regions, sorry, nations uh, of the UK uh, to listen to. He was suggesting that actually Sinn Féin's get out of the vote. Um, was extremely sure. effective. Oh, no, no, very uh, effective. It was a lot of Catholic non-voters that they were able to mobilise mm. to come and sort of get them within a whisker of being the largest party. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, again, it's partly about squeezing the SDP vote and, and partly about turning out new voters, so very interesting. But then the whole dynamic, obviously, this week with, with um, the, the, the announcement of Martin McGuinness's death kind of then puts, again, a, a different kind of perspective on, on what's going on. Um, I, I think, think, before you go on, did you see the Daily Mail's front page today? I haven't actually. I dread so it. Was think, it was basically uh, two scenes from two different bombings. Right. And yeah. it just said Martin McGuinness and the, the years of his uh, birth and death, which I thought was a little sm- a smidge inappropriate. Um, well, yeah. I think, I think what's interesting there is... Maybe unhelpful is a better well, one. Well, no, but I think that what's interesting there is that the, 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 what's been sort of slightly unhelpful is that it's been... The BBC actually, I think, was fairly fairly nuanced, certainly in its morning coverage of this, and some newspapers similarly in terms of, you know, there were certainly two two chapters, at least, in, in, in McGuinness's life. What's been interesting is was the sort of re- reaction, certainly towards the evening, by some voices of which the Daily Mail is, is clearly one, which sort of seemed to be thinking that the, the, there was a kind of Panglossian view of Martin McGuinness's great saint by the end of the time. And of course, yeah. the whole significance of, of, of his, certainly his political life, was whether you believe that the IRA were defeated and therefore came sort of begging to, for a, a sort of settlement and, and, and so on, or whether you believe that it was a great act of courage amongst McGuinness and Adams et al. to sort of come to the negotiating table, certainly a debate for another time. That's kind of irrelevant in terms of actually, whatever your perspective on that, that actually to bring that community from a place where 
to a greater or lesser extent it was certainly getting 20% mm. and, and, or, or around that in terms of elections and certainly have political support for an armed struggle of some form to actually taking that, that and putting it properly into practical politics and carrying the IRA broadly with you in, in, that, in that movement um, whether you think that you were doing that from a position of weakness or perceived strength is, is kind of irrelevant to me um, it's still a significant here's achievement. a tentative concern I have with Northern Ireland no one I think would suggest that we're going to go back to the troubles as they were. There was so much organ. There was they came out of a certain scenario with with what was going on in Northern Ireland in the sixties and fifties and sixties that that doesn't exist today. And there was obviously an organisational structure and funding and uh, mm. uh, around it that made it a, a genuine civil war in, in, in Britain. Um, but at the same time, as these leaders are of that time, Ian Paisley, of course, Martin McGuinness, die off for want of a better phrase. It, the whole situation there does rely on the people that replace them being mm -hmm. as good in, in terms of bringing people with them, as you've mentioned, and, and as credible with that base. And I don't know, you could argue that because the troubles were such a long time ago that there is no appetite to go back to that. I'm not necessarily arguing that there is an appetite to go back to that. What I'm arguing is that if there is insufficient political leadership in the future, that, that, that instability that could potentially become quite violent. And we should remember, as an aside... Northern Ireland does get very violent in, 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 at certain periods throughout the year where there's marching season and so on. It just isn't, you know, people mm. dying and genuine bomb, you know, bombs killing people and all, all the rest of it. I worry about, as these people leave the scene, what replaces them. Um, f final word to you, Leo, just um, brought you in on some of yeah, this. Yeah, I think the only thing to add to what Rob's saying is um, the, the UK-wide perspective that we're still in this really bizarre position where... Um, the the civil war that finished not that long ago, the um, stru the structure of the country are perhaps more more at threat than um, the peace and the structure of the country are more at threat than they've been for quite some time, and yet it is really not featuring in um, the national consciousness outside outside Northern Ireland really. But um, and I wonder if that'll change um, and how that'll feed into Brexit negotiations. That was Leo Barassi and Rob Vance, and a big thanks as ever to them for their time and their insights. Certainly a wide-ranging discussion there. Um, on Scotland, we'll find out more from Mark Diffley about the situation there next week. Um, I do think that the poll that we've produced today, um, looking at the, um, the latest polling matters, opinion figures on whether or not there should be a second uh, Brexit referendum or a second EU referendum, were interesting. Um, if it's true that the Remain vote is indeed consolidating um, behind you know, there being a second referendum or indeed consolidating at all, then that does have wider political implications for the country in the long term. It may not be that the uh, Remain side, which of course accounted for 48% of the people that voted in that referendum and ultimately lost, can you know usurp the lead side and become the dominant political force in Britain. Um, but that said, if it is coalescing together, then it certainly feels like it will become a political force of some kind. And that dynamic will be um, very important in the future of British politics. But maybe it won't, of course. Maybe the um, the, the Brexit negotiations will be reasonably smooth and therefore this will all be forgotten. But that's certainly a set of numbers to keep an eye out for. On Leo's point on the um, uh, on a snap election, I mean, he, he makes several good points about um, why there won't be one or why there probably won't be one. Um, but I still stand by my take, which is that, you know, if I'm Theresa May and I'm 15 points ahead in the polls, 
I don't think it's going to get better than that for her at a general election in 2020, given what's coming. Um, I think she will regret not finding a way, at least, of having uh, an election. But who knows? We will uh, wait to see. And Rob certainly raises some good points on Northern Ireland. I, I as you know, am someone that is very committed to trying to keep that agenda, uh, issue on the agenda in any small way that I can. Um, you know, I only run a podcast, but I do think it's important to uh, remember what's going on there and to keep it in our minds as Britain leaves the EU and, of course, um, beyond. But that's all we've got time for for this week's show. The music you're about to hear is uh, by Scott Holmes and it's called Happy Days and it's licensed under a Creative Commons. If you can, uh, if you want to support the show, do um, give us a nice rating on iTunes or other apps. Do subscribe, do share the episodes. And also, if you really like us, then do um, see your way to voting for us in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice. We're up against some big names. We're just a bunch of guys, independent, uh, an independent podcast, if you will. Um, and if you can get go onto the website and vote for us, we'd very much appreciate it because shortlisted podcasts will uh, be on the Guardian website and that can grow our audience further. To do that, you have to go to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote, type in polling matters, and uh, we're the one with a graph rather than the American one by uh, Frank Newport. There are two, believe it or not, polling matters. Um, but if you can do that, that's fantastic. Otherwise, share us in any way you can. It really is appreciated. But for now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks on Scotland and France. <laughs> 